Welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. And let's face it, pretty much all of us can do the whole falling in love thing really well. You meet someone, the stars align, your heart beats a little faster, and you're off into a full-blown relationship. And you have a good idea about what you actually want your relationship to look like. However, I have a question for you. Do you actually have the skills required to have that kind of relationship? Today, we're talking with Terry Reel, author of the best-selling book, The New Rules of Marriage, What You Need to Know to Make Love Work. His book is basically a handbook for the skills that you need to thrive at any stage of relationship. Terry has been in private practice for over 25 years, and his relationship wisdom has been featured on Good Morning America, 2020, Oprah, and now he's here on our show. So get ready. We're going to cover some advanced relationship jujitsu in this episode. You will definitely learn some new ways to approach difficult times, as well as how to make good times even better. And we'll also give you an opportunity to win a signed copy of Terry's book. Terry Real, welcome to Relationship Alive. So pleased to have you here. Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure. I'm wondering if we can start, instead of starting at the beginning, and when I say beginning, I'm thinking about the beginning of your book. I'm wondering if we can start at the end and if you can articulate a vision for what you think is the highest potential for people, couples in relationship with each other. Oh, great question. Well, I, I think that we ha have never wanted more from our relationships than we do right in this moment. This is really historically new. You know, back in our parents' and grandparents' day, uh, we had what I call the companionable marriage. If, uh, if a partner was a good breadwinner or a good mother and caretaker and nobody beat anybody or drank too much or did, they uh, had uh, affairs, you know, they were great. But nowadays we want so much more than just a companion. We really want a lifelong lover. We want long walks on the beach holding hands. We want heart-to-heart -heart conversations and great sex into our 40s, 50s, 60s, and, and beyond. And um, I think we have the potential to do that. We have the potential to be true, cherishing soulmates uh, for the entirety of our lives. But uh, you have to have mastered... Uh, a, a fairly sophisticated set of skills in order to pull that off. And frankly, most people just don't know how to do it. Uh, they don't know how to be intimate in at the level of the game that they want it played. And so that's where people like you and, and I come in. I think that's true that everyone does have this perhaps idealized vision of what that could be like. Yeah, I don't think it's so idealized. Well, I, I do think, here's how I put it, Neil. All relationships are an endless dance of harmony, disharmony, and repair. Closeness, disruption, and a return to closeness. And when you look at it big picture, I talk about three phases in the relationship. The early phase I speak of as love without knowledge. 
<laughs> you uh, you have a deep soul recognition uh, that this person is uh, connected to you, but you don't really know what they do with their toothpaste or how they pay their bills. The second phase I speak of as uh, knowledge without love. This is the phase of disillusionment. And one of the things that I write about and talk to people about is that disillusionment phase can be really rough. It's really dark. I've gone all over the country talking to people about what I call normal marital hatred. <laughs> and not one person has ever come backstage and said, Terry, what did you mean by that? <laughs> Everybody seems to know what it is. So um, that's something that's rarely acknowledged in our culture, just how dark the dark side of marriage can be. And then the third phase of marriage, the repair phase or mature love, uh, or I call knowing love. This is where you see your partner's warts and mold very clearly, but you also appreciate so much what they are giving you that you grieve what you're not getting and embrace what you are getting. So, you know, what we like in the modern West is we like to freeze that early stage, that harmony stage, falling in love stage, and we would like to keep that all along. But that's not real intimacy. That's just, that's just a love festival. Right. Real intimacy is about going through all three stages, going from harmony through disillusionment into acceptance and repair. And that's where the skills come in. But I do think that if people can get through those phases, and over and over again, I'm not talking about a one-shot deal, if people can really plunge the depths with each other and remain connected, there's an awful lot of cherishing and closeness that your intimate relationship is able to afford you. Can you talk about cherishing since you just mentioned it? Can you talk mm -hmm. about that for a moment? I know that that's one of your five winning strategies. Yes, right. So, so what does you know, that do? The, in the New Rules of Marriage, there are many chapters in Cherishing is about, there's the last chapter, and it's about twice as long as all the others. Cherishing simply means that you give your partner what they need in order to feel cherished by you, in order to feel really loved. And you give yourself what you need in order to feel loved, and you give the relationship what it needs in order to feel loved. So it, it really, there's a, 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 a I, I, I think I recommend about 20 different things in that cherishing chapter. It's everything from appreciation. You know, most uh, American couples are what I call ADD, appreciation deficiency disorder. <laughs> um, we give each other much more negative feedback than positive feedback. And appreciation is just literally taking a few moments to turn to your partner and say, hey, you know, this, that, or the other thing that you did today or in the last couple of days, I really thought that was swell. And... Um, it's something that we don't do enough of. It's just, or the other form of cherishing. We were, well, I was talking about being a lifelong lover. You know, I don't know what it is about marriage, but we stop acting like lovers once once we get married, and certainly once we have kids. And I talk to people about keeping a little erotic energy at play as you go through your day, you go through your weekend. 
walk over and give your partner a, a real kiss or nibble on their ear or say, you look really hot today. It doesn't mean every time you do that, you're going to wind up in the sack. In fact, you have to be secure that that's not going to happen. But, um, but cherish the erotic life of the couple. Um, cherish your practice. Cherish your own recovery. And for goodness sake, cherish yourself. You know, self-esteem is about your relationship to you. And that can be worked on just like your relationship to your partner. So uh, I want people to be less harsh and more uh, warm and tender and appreciative to themselves, first of all, and to their partner. And I want this to be a conscious effort. A little of this can go a long way. In your book, you offer both of those aspects of working on yourself as really being a prerequisite to being able to fully work on your relationship. Yes. So that it only makes sense that the cherishing would be turned inward as well as outward on your on your partner as well. You know, here here's a little something that uh, I, I I like these things where I get to say if your listeners only get this and nothing more, uh, it'll be worth a while to have listened to this. Are you ready for this one? Are you this sure you don't has, want to wait till the end? No, just no, kidding. <laughs> just has, kidding. This has the power to change people's lives. Truly. It's a very simple observation. Great. Harshness has no redeeming value of any kind. There is nothing that harshness does that loving firmness doesn't do better. And that's true if you're being harsh to your partner or your kid. I know we're all imperfect, but uh, or, or to your kid. Uh, and it's especially true if you're being harsh to yourself. So I teach people to stand up to behaviors they don't like. I'm not talking about that. It's perfectly fine to say, hey, listen, I don't feel like you're speaking to me very respectfully right now. Could you please change your tone? But you ask yourself, is this going to be harsh? And if it's harsh, take a breath, grow up, and say it with a little more softness and respect. Can you offer a contrast? Like here's an example of something being delivered harshly versus that same thing being offered you know, with really loving firmness. I really don't like the way you asked that question, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> That's A. And B would be, you know, I'm trying to understand what you're saying. Could I ask you to say that again? Got it. And hopefully everyone else got that as well. I, I think it's not that subtle. You know, one of the things I, another tip off is self-righteous indignation. You get trapped by self-righteous indignation, and you can throw solution out the door. You, that's one of the losing strategies, as you know, um, being right. And uh, I have a saying, you can be right or you can be married. What's more important to you? So um, it really has to do with what I call keeping your eyes on the prize. Or somebody said, wait, why am I talking? W-A-I-T. Are, uh, are you communicating to your partner because you really want to make things better? Or is it one of the losing strategies? Is it being right or control or ventilating or retaliation? Um, you know, why are, what are you about here? And uh, I speak about what I call remembering love. Remember that the person you're speaking to is someone you love. And the reason why you're speaking is to make things better. If you can't get there, 
Remember that you have to live with the son of the gun, so it's in your interest to let go of your pride and let go of the point and try and work things out. Just remembering that when you face your partner, the goal is to make things better between the two of you is already a revolution for many of us. Yeah, and that also seems to factor into the first winning strategy of shifting from complaints to making requests. Yeah, I call that moving from a negative past focus to a positive future focus. It's moving from, I don't like the way you're talking to me, to, uh, could you please dial that down so I could listen better? You don't talk about what the person did wrong. You talk about what they could do that would be right. Every complaint has an implicit request. It just take, And I have people sit down and write the complaint first and then shift it to the request. But every time you say, I didn't like the way you did this, there is an implicit message of, I would like it better if you would do it that way. That's what I want you to focus on, particularly women to men. Men across the board are criticism phobic. And men will respond, everybody will respond, but particularly men will respond much less defensively if it's couched as, this would please me, rather than that didn't please me. Right. It seems like that would give your partner an opportunity to actually show up and please you versus just feeling berated or beaten. <laughs> you know, functional moves are moves that empower your partner to come through for you. And dysfunctional moves are moves that render your partner helpless. It's all about teamwork. It's about rolling up your sleeves and saying, what do you need from me? To, you remember this from the book. This is the golden rule. What can I give you to help you come through for me? What do you need from me in order to give me what I'm asking for? Let's be a team about this. It's not about right and wrong. It's about how are we going to make this work together because we love each other. How would you help someone who comes to you as an individual and they're the one who's actively seeking to help and to change their relationship, but their partner hasn't fully bought into that? So mm -hmm. they might be thinking about that golden rule of, of relationship, but, it, but maybe it seems like their partner isn't all that interested in hearing it really. And in fact, yeah. if they took that to their partner, their partner might say, why would I be interested in helping you? Here are the ways that you can help me. Or I I'm just hypo well, hypothesizing. Here. In that moment, you're talking to a very immature part of your partner. And as you know from the book, um, one of the most important questions that I ask in the work that I do is, which part of you is speaking? Mm. Is it the adult present-based part of you that really wants to work things out? Or is it an immature, selfish, or defensive part of you that is much more interested in getting your way or defending yourself and protecting yourself than working things out? So that sounds like a partner talking to somebody who isn't in that mature part of them, which for some people is most of them, unfortunately. You know, I have a three-step action plan for getting what you want. The first step, the first thing I would counsel somebody in that situation is what I call daring to rock the boat. 
This is the part where you grab your partner by the collar, you look him in the eye, and you go, listen, this is really important to me. You really need to listen up. And that can be a little, you know, feisty (laughs) at first phase. You really got to let him know that you mean business. The second phase is once you get their attention and they're in good, good spirits trying to give it to you, break it down and help them win. Uh, you know, for example, women across uh, America want empathic listeners and men across America offer problem-solving listeners. There's nothing wrong with either listener if they're just at odds with each other. So I teach women to say, okay, I don't want you to solve my problems. I just want you to say, there, there, honey, I'm sorry, that must feel awful. Just be compassionate and empathic and nice like a girlfriend. Break it down and teach them what it is that you want. And then the third phase is making it worth their while. Once your partner starts to give you more of what you're asking, for goodness sake, give them positive feedback for it. I tell uh, people to celebrate the glass 20% full. It was only 10% full last week, and hopefully it'll be 30% full this week. But so many of us, if our partner turns around and tries to please us, our feedback is, well, you know, that was kind of a half-assed job. (laughs) (laughs) And that's not very encouraging. So dare to rock the boat, break it down, and help them see what it is that you want from them, and then reward them when they try and give it to you. How about the person who feels like, well, if I have to ask, oh yeah, then it doesn't mean anything. You know, I wonder what gender we're talking about <laughs> because I think this one's more on women. Uh, I, I call that the Cinderella syndrome. Uh, my Prince Charming should just know what it is that I want and, uh, and, and give it to me. And if I have to articulate it, let alone fight for it, uh, then that's no good. And, and you know, what I say is, girls, uh, Cinderella's dead. Uh, Prince Charming probably just came out of rehab. And uh, if you want it, you're going to have to fight for it and assert yourself. It's a bitter pill for people in general and women in particular. But it's not going to kill you. Um, you have to, you're asking, particularly if it's women to men, you're asking guys to operate with a level of open heartedness and sensitivity and vulnerability that goes flat out against the way they were raised as boys. You're asking a lot. So, you know what? The, the very least you can do is participate and help them come along. I know it's work and people will say, why should I have to do it? Well, because you live with them and you want it. That's why you should have to do it. It may not be fair, but it gets the job done. So get off your high horse and swallow that bitter pill that's just be able to read your mind and go for it. Be assertive. While we're being, while we're generalizing, it's probably fair to say that most guys actually appreciate an instruction manual of some sort to help them figure out what to do, how to do it right. Yeah, right. Most guys are walking around 
there's an old Sumerian poem about a guy wandering around in the desert saying to the gods, I would please you if you just told me what to do. And most guys are kind of like that. Uh, I would please my wife or my long-term girlfriend uh, if she would just tell me what it is that she wants from me. And... um, um, most men find women endlessly mysterious. So the more articulate you can be, uh, the better the odds. If it is phrased positively, lovingly, respectfully, and there's a reward for it. If it's all going to be negative, then you're just going to get a negative response. But if you really enter into it in the spirit of, look, this is what I want. What do you need for me to make that happen? And come on, we love each other. We're a team. We both deserve this. If that's the spirit you're saying it in, the odds are much better you'll get what you want. Let's dig a little bit deeper because what you were saying earlier about questioning the the maturity level of the person that was speaking when I offered that example, it made me think about your what you wrote about core negative images images yeah and the idea that we are seeking out basically a replay of things that happened to us in our childhood or in our families what we saw and with an opportunity to heal that Mm -hmm. so can you describe that a little bit and where this concept of core negative image comes into play because I'd really like our listeners to to get a sense of how that could be useful for them. Okay, great. So there are really two questions in there, and they're both pretty big. One is about core negative images, or CNIs, we call it, uh, and the other is about um, the healing potential in a relationship uh, that comes from another bitter pill, Neil, which is we all marry our unfinished business. Uh, We all marry our mothers and fathers. We all become our mothers and fathers. What you grew up with becomes your template for what a relationship looks like. And remember, I talked about those three phases. The first phase, that harmony phase, falling in love, uh, whether we're too sophisticated to say it out loud or not, usually means that you think, with this person all of my early childhood wounds will be healed or at least avoided. And real marriage comes with that disillusionment phase when you look at your partner and you realize that this person is exquisitely designed to, I say, stick the burning spear right into your eyeball. (laughs) Were you betrayed? Your partner has an affair. Were you abandoned? He or she becomes a workaholic. Did you overfunction? They lose their job and don't get another one for two. Whatever it is that you're running from, uh, your marriage will stick in your face. At, by the way, I say marriage, but I mean any long-term relationship. And I talk about he and she, but I'm also talking about same-sex relationship. But at any rate, why do we do this? There are people who would not throw us back in the soup, but they don't compel us. We are in some deep soul level compelled to pick partners who are enough like what we grew up with that we re-enter the old drama. But here's the beauty. They are enough unlike what we grew up with. They have additional resources that our parents didn't have. So that if we do something different, they 
there's a snowball's chance in hell that they'll do something different. And that's what's healing. What drive you know, the merry road to hell is paved with good intentions. What drives so many of our battles with each other is the mistaken idea that I can heal my old wounds if you would just do this or that differently. <laughs> Right, yeah. I would be. I want to get a T-shirt that says, "I would be really happy if only you." <laughs> dot dot dot. Uh, it doesn't work. The real healing comes from my dealing with my little boy or the little girl who lives inside of me, and not foisting that little person onto my partner to deal with. Let me do something different in that early uh, wound and that early drama, and then let that evoke something different from you. That can be healing. So that's the healing potential of relationships. And I think that um, we do transform in our relationships. One of my colleagues and friends, Esther Perel, says, I, she's, she's French and uh, Belgium actually, but she speaks with a French accent. I will want to be married six times in my life, and I hope it's all with the same husband. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, we have real transformative potential as we grow and change in our relationships, and our relationships will force us to grow and change or be miserable. Which brings us to core negative image. Your core negative image of your partner is an exaggerated description of he or she at their worst. It's not them at their best, it's not them at baseline, it's not even an accurate description of them at their worst. It's kind of a pungent description of them at their worst. But it is them. So the beauty of core negative image is when you're fighting or when you're miserable, when you're looking at your partner and you're going, that goddamn blankety-blank, uh, the blankety-blank is going to be the same thing every time. It's consistent. It's not like, you know, a virus or something that keeps mutating and changing. When you see your partner as a miserable and impossible, you will see them through the same spectacles over the course of 40 years. That can be very useful to us. What happens is um, it goes like this. Let's see. Rather than speaking abstractly, let me tell you what. Let me do my marriage. Sure. My wife, Belinda, has a core negative image of me as being narcissistic, selfish, immature, undependable, and an irresponsible boy. Now, you could see just how disturbed she is that she would even think these things of me, but <laughs> she does. I have uh, an, a core negative image of Belinda as being insatiable, controlling, uh, critical, dominating witch. And that's about what core negative images look like. They're about four or five words strung together. Uh, okay, now, I feel okay, by the way, uh, acknowledging that this is our CNIs in our marriage. It's not the idea of an irresponsible boy uh, coupled with a nagging witch. It's not exactly a rare heterosexual pairing. So I, I'm okay to come out of the closet with it. But um, it goes like this. So I'm late for work. I leave the milk out of the refrigerator, right? Belinda mm -hmm. gets core negative image triggered. She's no longer speaking with nuance to Terry, who was late, who uh, you know left the milk out. She's speaking to that irresponsible, selfish boy. 
That milk will always be left out because that's just the kind of guy I am. She starts to tell me that I need to take responsibility for being more responsible around the house. The kids are watching. She's brought this up before, blah, 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 blah. But she does it harshly. She's not, she doesn't have, neither of us are having a good day. I look at Belinda and do I say, oh, honey, you're right. That was irresponsible of me. Let me make it better. No, I don't. I look at her and I go, guess what? Oh, you controlling, insatiable, critical witch. In other words, when she gets CNI triggered, she behaves toward me in a way that triggers my CNI of her. And we are, tell me if this is technical for you, off to the races. <laughs> you know, once both partners are CNI triggered, I like to say they can fight it out. You, the two of you can go have a beer because you're not even talking to each other anymore. It's your CNI berating their CNI and vice versa. Uh, so that's how this thing works. It's like a Chinese finger, you know, puzzle where the more you pull against it, the tighter it gets. Now, let me tell you some things to do about it. Great. First of all, just like a Chinese finger puzzle, rather than resisting it, which just makes it tighter, lean into it. Rather than saying, see, what we mostly do is we react to our partner's exaggeration of who we are negatively and then we argue with their exaggeration don't do that pick out the grain of truth in it i call this relational jujitsu don't fight it roll with it mm -hmm. pick out the grain of truth in it and acknowledge it yeah you're right i left the milk carton out the kids are watching it's not a good role model i can be irresponsible at times i'm sorry so that's the first thing to do don't fight it roll with it the second thing to say is once your partner, once your CNIs of each other are on the table, and kids don't do this until you read my book and get some self-esteem work and some boundaries in place because otherwise it's pretty explosive. But once your CNIs are explicit and on the table with each other and you stop fighting it, I can look at Belinda and when she's CNI triggered, rather than get reactive, I can say to myself, oh, she's being CNI triggered right now. She's not talking to me. She's talking to that irresponsible boy. I get it. What can I do to help her? And I don't personalize and I don't get reactive and I don't get my heart doesn't start beating and I don't get all in a sweat about it. So it can help me in that regard. But the biggest thing that it can do is this. Once you know your partner CNI of you, you have operating instructions. Anything that you do that comes close to that CNI is going to upset your partner. And conversely, anything you do that's the opposite of those characteristics are going to float your partner's boat. So if I'm late for picking up the kids, for example, it's a pretty good guess that balloons are going to get CNI triggered. If I uh, come home and uh, I'm defensive about it or I ignore it, uh, she's going to get even more CNI triggered. If I pick up the kids on time, that's going to be reassuring to her. If I'm a few minutes late and I walk in the door and say, listen, I was a few minutes late. I'm really sorry. I've already apologized to the kids for it. I know I can be late. I'm working on it. How disarming is that? So um, depending on what your partner CNI of you is, you know what's going to please them and you know what's going to rile them up. 
the more you are like that CNI, the more they're going to be upset with you. The more you're the opposite of that CNI, the more they're going to be pleased with you. This is very useful information. It's like a compass that uh, will point you uh, due south and uh, you want to go north. But um, it, it will teach you where to go. Right, and I, I liked your suggestion in the book of actually listing out the the CNI busting things that you could do that would be completely opposite from whatever right. would reinforce your your CNI or your partner's <laughs> CNI of you. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, once you have those CNI those images on the table, you can literally take a sheet of paper, draw a line down the middle. And on the left-hand side, say, CNI confirming behaviors. In my case, if I'm irresponsible, uh, if that's part of Belinda's CNI, then doing things like being late or dropping things or leaving milk out of the refrigerator will be CNI confirming to her. And then the opposite would be CNI disputing behavior, being super responsible. You know what? <laughs> Belinda, we were in Washington D.C. and we went to CVS to get Belinda a bunion pad for one for her bunion, and they were out of bunion pads. Uh, days later, I was at CVS getting something for my cold, and I got her a bunion pad. And that level of thoughtfulness is CNI disputing behavior is the opposite of irresponsible. Same thing for her. Anything that she says to me that's going to be highly critical, bing, I'm CNI triggered. Anything that she says that's going to be appreciative, you did a really good job, Terry. That's CNI busting behaviors, and it will make me feel great. So sit down and list them out. Uh, you'll save yourself six months of couples therapy. Now, while we're dealing with this advanced relationship jujitsu, uh, could we talk for a moment about the dead stop, which just as a, a quick little preface, you did say in the book, this could be really horrible for people who aren't at a good stage in their relationship already. But if you're at a good stage, this could get you from good to great. So. Yes. Yes. Uh, so let's see. Mm. You and I are in a relationship, Neil, and right or wrong, always a good phrase to use, right or wrong, uh, I often feel disrespected by you. I feel like you're sarcastic and you're snippy. And this is not true, of course, but just hypothetically. Uh, you're snippy and uh, you're demeaning in, in ways, uh, some large but mostly subtle. I don't like it. And you don't want me to feel like that. Once that's on the table, we can do a dead stop contract, which runs like this. If I feel you say or do something to me that is disrespectful or demeaning, we have a signal. My default signal is pineapple, uh, but it could be disrespected, or it could be hurt feelings, or it could be blue. Anyway, you hear pineapple, and you come to a dead stop. That's our contract coming into this. You come to a dead stop, you take a breath, and you're conciliatory. Gee, I'm sorry, honey, I didn't mean to be disrespectful. I'm sorry you feel like that. What can I do right now to help you feel better? You don't argue with them, that's death. You don't get defensive, and you don't keep going. You come to a dead stop and tend to the hurt or bruised feelings of your partner. 
Why? It doesn't matter if they're right or wrong. It doesn't matter if it's accurate or inaccurate. You live with that person. It's in your interest to help them feel better. So as an act of generosity and enlightened self-interest, uh, if they're feeling bad and they call a dead stop, you will drop what you're doing and attend to their bad feelings and help them feel better. It's a pretty advanced skill. So in other words, if your partner... Or if I feel like my partner is doing something that feeds into my CNI of them. So sure. when I, how I see them when I think they're at their worst and they're playing right into it, I might say pineapple, which to them is saying, you're about to go down that road that triggers the hell out of me. And, and then hopefully it, the part of the contract is that they stop and rather than get defensive or uh, argumentative, they apologize and yeah. admit that rightly or wrongly they you felt like they were going down that road yeah i feel bad that you feel bad and mm. i didn't gosh you know maybe i did intend for you to feel bad that would be a great apology or maybe uh, that's not what i intended but i can see how you might feel like that that's a compassionate response but in any case you know what uh, I'm really sorry you feel bad, honey. Is there something I could say or do that would help you feel better? And then if they say it and it's halfway reasonable, give it to them. Don't You want to make peace. You know, what's that old Chinese proverb, happy wife, happy life? It's in your interest to keep your partner happy. You live with them. So uh, it, it, it is an act of generosity. It's also a kind of enlightened self-care to be generous to them. Mm. Before we pick up this thread and go to the to another strategy, which I think is more of a, a intermediate level strategy, I just want to point out to our listeners that we're we're only going to be able to cover a small part of what's in your book, The New Rules of Marriage, and. Fortunately for our listeners, it's available for sale on Amazon or any other bookseller, probably in your local bookseller. And on top of that, Terry has also offered to give away a signed copy of this book to a lucky listener. So if you're hearing this episode within the first week of its airing, you can text the word PASSION, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 and just follow the instructions that you get there. Or you can go to my website, neilsatin.com slash Terry, T-E-R-R-Y. And on that page, you'll see the show notes, which is a summary of all the salient points from our conversation. And you can download a guide for this, uh, this episode. And by downloading the guide or texting, as I suggested earlier, that will qualify you for the giveaway of Terry's book. And the guide will always be there. So you can always text in or download the guide and that will be there to help you make use of the information that we're talking about in this episode. But thank you, Terry, for, for that generous offer for the uh, giveaway. Only for you, Neil, would I do this, let me tell you. Oh, that's Listen. so sweet. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, while we're doing all this, let me. I'd like to invite everybody to my website, Absolutely. Uh, just type in Terry Real, uh, Google Terry Real, you'll get there, or type in terryreal.com, 
and you'll get there. And in particular, uh, I'd like to invite people to go because there's an inventory, very simple, that you can take uh, to score your relationship on an intimacy scale. How intimate or unintimate are we and in which domains are we uh, in good shape and bad shape? It's a very simple uh, little self-test and uh, people have found it extremely useful. So terryreal.com is uh, where you'll find it and there's lots of good stuff on that website as well. Great, and we will have a link to your site uh, and maybe I'll even find a link directly to that intimacy uh, test and Great. that will be there for our listeners as well. Um, and I also want to point out too that you are teaching live workshops for people all over the country, right? So people can actually go as a couple and, and work with you intensively. That's right. Uh, in in fact, uh, I'm I'm looking for uh, volunteers to come for free as long as they would be willing to uh, be public about it and, and be filmed. It's a really interesting format. I sit for two days with six couples. I call them the inner circle, and there's an outer circle of uh, mental health professionals who are respectfully and quietly observing uh, that I speak to at, during lunch and at the end of the day. But the six couples are with me for two days, and I work intensively with couple number one, get to the heart of the issue. Uh, the group of the other couples gives them some feedback about what it was like for them to witness it. Then we're on to couple number two. It's very emotional. It's very intense work. And uh, it's one of my favorite uh, things to do. We also offer what we call relationship boot camps, um, essential skills course. It's essentially the new rules of marriage in a workshop. And uh, it's a two-day workshop for both couples and individuals, anybody wanting to learn relationship skills. And uh, I do those around the country as well. So it's all on my website. Great. And the, uh, the opportunity to potentially do that for free, is that, is that clear in terms of how people can learn about that? Just go to the website, say you've heard about it, uh, hit the button that says contact us. Uh, and that will give you an email. Just say you heard about it and you'd like to volunteer. It's going to be in October in Minneapolis. I can't uh, pay for your travel, but the normal fee for that workshop for a couple is about 1700 bucks. So it's a good deal to do it for free. But you have to be willing to be um, broadcast uh, and filmed only for mental health professionals. You're not going to be on Oprah. You're not going to be on YouTube. Uh, but uh, you will be observed by other mental health professionals. Well, that sounds like it could be a fantastic opportunity. So thank you for announcing that on our episode today. And while we're talking about current events, maybe you could just take a minute and chat about the work that you're doing with Esther Perel, who you mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. um, around, it, it looks like it's about narcissism and infidelity. And what, what is that about? <laughs> Narcissism, infidelity, and trauma. Like, what did we leave out? <laughs> um, uh, next Friday, April 17th, uh, the fabulous Esther Perel, who I'll go on and on about in a minute, and I will be in Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, for a full day on uh, narcissism, infidelity, and trauma. Uh, it will be primarily for mental health professionals, but uh, uh, what I call normal people can also come in, and I think they'll learn a lot and have a good time. And uh, for your listeners, it will also be simulcast. 
So anywhere in the country, you can um, spend the day with us. Again, just go to my website, and uh, there'll be details there, or you can shoot us an email if you're confused about any of it. Esther, if you uh, know her, is amazing. I, I literally think she is the most interesting voice on issues of sexuality in the world alive right now. She did a TED Talk on uh, keeping passion alive in long-term relationships. So far, she's gotten close to 6 million views. So she's quite a hot ticket, and we love each other dearly, and we fire off of each other and give each other a hard time and <laughs> try and keep it fun. So it, it's going to be a fun day. That sounds rich, for sure. While we're on that topic, this is a just bringing something up out of the blue, but it occurred to me, what about couples where something like a grievous wrong or offense has happened, mm. like infidelity? Mm -hmm. How would you help a couple like that get back yeah. on track? Well, you know, you 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 read my mind. You're very attuned, I have to say, because I'm toying with that being my next book. Mm. I'm to I'm toying with the book. The tentative title is Coming Back. And it has to do with how to repair from something really disastrous, like an infidelity or uh, squandering somebody's money or lying in some other way. Or, um, but it's coming back from a disaster, and um, you you have to first of all the person if it's uh, the person who created or perpetrated the disaster has to be humble and accountable they have to see what it is that they've done and move into contrition now with an affair let me be clear uh you, a lot of people they may pretend at it but a lot of people truly if the affair was a positive experience for them are not sorry that they had the affair they're sorry for the damage that it did to their partner and to the family and that's okay that's enough you don't have to pretend to be more remorseful than you are but the first step is accountability and then of course the next step is uh to deal with the hurt partner and in these situations the hurt partner has truly been traumatized and by trauma, I mean that the things that you didn't have to think about, the assumptions, are shattered. You know, you lean against the wall and you just go right through it because solids aren't solid anymore. And how disorienting would that be? Mm. So the hurt partner is fundamentally disoriented. And their job is to put their arms around what happened, to make sense out of it. That's why, for example, in affairs, the hurt partner gets very obsessive. Where were you when? What did you do here? What was it? What dress was she wearing? You know, it's, I, I like to say, um, we like to know the license plate of the truck that run us over. It's our way of mastering the experience. How big was that tsunami exactly and how many other people were killed? This is a, a, an important and inevitable part of coming back from disaster is dealing with the trauma, trauma reaction uh, of the hurt partner and then slowly, slowly, slowly trust has to be um, reintroduced. And I don't like the word forgiveness. Uh, I think that puts too much of a burden on the hurt partner. But the past needs to be uh, seen as the past. I 
have partners do demarcation rituals like it could be uh, saying your vows again but it's the crisis is over this is the new transformed relationship and this is uh, this is my pledge to that new relationship these crises have the potential to transform us to transform each of us in the crisis and the relationship as a whole but we have to rise to the occasion in order for that to happen and for many people it helps to get some outside help the two of you working this out on your own may may just be overwhelming so uh, I look at these crises as the dark night of the soul uh, but also as the first step toward the potential to be more intimate, more open, more honest, and even more loving than you were before the crisis began. Yeah, so it's really about reestablishing your commitment to the relationship no matter what has happened, and then acknowledging the process that you actually, that it is a process that you have to go through. It's not like a, I'm sorry, you're forgiven, done there's no there has to be real understanding on both sides yeah there has to be um why did you do what you did when you you when you left my bed where we were close and then went to him or her what were you thinking was that hard for you when you were with this person in chicago when you said you were really in detroit were you thinking about the kids? Were you concerned about what that might be? Or were they completely out of your mind? What parts of you lit up in that uh, addiction or that affair or whatever it was? What parts of you came alive that were dormant? And how do we bring that back into our relationship? These are deep questions that need to be understood. They're beyond the perpetrator-victim uh, frame. They're beyond the rehabilitation frame that is common in most therapy. It's a deeper understanding about how you did what you did and how I can be reassured it's not going to happen again. And how do you come back to that remembering love and, and your your higher purpose of repairing your relationship? Because really it sounds like that's part of that continuum that you mentioned of moving from disharmony, harmony, exactly. disharmony into repair. Exactly. And I told you, I warned you that that disharmony phase can really be agony. The, the, a great poet, David White, once said, uh, anything that you truly love in this world will break your heart. Our hearts will be broken in our relationships. A good relationship is not a relationship in which your heart is never broken. A good relationship is a relationship in which after it's broken, the healing can occur. That's what separates uh, the grown-ups from the kids. That, you just kind of blew me away there with what you said, because I'm imagining all these people listening being like, what? Like either, oh great, I get to go have that affair, and <laughs> or like, what do you mean? Like, this is, like, I'm gonna hurt? That's part of this whole thing? You are going to hurt, my friend. Yeah. And that is part of this whole thing. That doesn't mean you're in a bad relationship. It means you're in a real relationship. You know, here's the thing. We all long for the divine. It's part of our human nature. We want gods or goddesses as our partner. Uh, 
and the discrepancy between the perfection that we long for and the woeful imperfection that we're stuck with <laughs> really sticks in the crawl. And that doesn't mean that, you know, Brene Brown wrote about the gift of imperfection. I want to talk about the gift of imperfection in your relationship. Real intimacy is about the collision of my imperfection and yours and what the two of us do with that, that's the real stuff. That's the blood and guts that drives us deeper uh, into our own resources and into one another. Sticking in the harmony phase is really great for kids, but it, it, it doesn't really give you the juice long term. You know, it's that... I'm pretty old. I remember that Annie Hall couple, this blonde, gorgeous couple, and uh, and Woody Allen says, "What's the secret of your happiness?" And the woman says, "Well, I'm completely daft and superficial." And the guy says, "And so am I." <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to stay in that, you know, Pepsi commercials phase of early stage. Go ahead and try, but if it's, uh, if it's, you know, my wife Belinda has a ton of girlfriends, and every once in a while, it's inevitable that they're going to have a, a fight. Uh, that's just how it is with Belinda. She'll have, at, at any given moment, the odds are good she's got some kind of fight going on with one of her 8 million girlfriends. And then they kiss and make up, and they're stronger and deeper than they were before the fight. That's real intimacy. It's not the absence of tension. It's the management of tension and using tension to grow. Yeah, I was wondering that actually after the the earlier part of the conversation where we were talking about this innate ability we have to choose people who provoke us on our deepest core level. And I was wondering if anyone might be listening and thinking, well, maybe I could just choose someone who isn't going to provoke all that stuff in me, and then we could just live happily together. Does that ever happen? It happens every time you fall in love. <laughs> <laughs> Every time you fall in love, you think you've got that person. Right. Uh, and, um, you know, James Framo, the father of uh, couples therapy back in the, in the 50s, once wrote, the day, this is back in the 50s, so it's assumed you were, you were uh, actually sleeping with your spouse. The, the day you turn to the person sleeping next to you and you say to yourself, oh, my God, what a mistake. <laughs> this is not the person I fell in love with. I've been had. That day, wrote Framo, is the first day of your real marriage. Wow. We want perfection. And we are stuck with somebody who picks their nose or expels gas or doesn't pay the bills on time. And it rankles. We don't like it. That's okay. It's part of living cheek to jowl with another human being. You know, one of the things I talk about, Neil, is how healthy couples regulate each other. Mm -hmm. If you're with another human being this closely, they're either going to go off into the wild blue yonder and you're going to have to say, hey, buddy, get your butt back here and connect with me, or they're going to move in and take liberty with you and you're going to, have to say excuse me pal back off that doesn't mean you're in a bad relationship it's part of what it means to be humans together and it's okay to embrace our imperfection and humanity both our own our partners and the relationship itself i'm wondering if we can take just a minute before we have to wrap things up because we have been so full of things to talk about that we've gone a little long, but I hope no one will mind because our conversation's been so rich and juicy. Um, what I'd like to 
talk about for a minute, if you don't mind, is the more intermediate level work that you talk about in your book, which involves how you look at yourself and the the grid, the relationship grid, and in particular, I, the four attributes on the grid, and cool. as a tool for looking at yourself and and helping yourself get centered, and then ultimately using that as a vehicle for for being more mature in, in how you act mm -hmm. in your relationship. Mm -hmm. Neil, you're kidding me, right? I mean, this is this is an hour long uh, thing you know, unto itself. <laughs> I've done whole days on the grid, but let's see if I can do it very. I'll do the elevator version of the grid. Right. The grid is I took two basic psychological concepts uh, from my mentor, Pia Melody, and I superimposed them. So imagine a cross. There's a vertical piece and a horizontal piece. The vertical piece is self-esteem, and health is in the middle. You're neither better than nor less than the person to the right or to the left of you. Ill health can be either going down into the inferior position of shame or up into the superior position of grandiosity. Okay, you got that one? Middle's yep. healthy, grandiosity, superiority, shame, inferiority, the top of the bar and the bottom of the bar. Okay, the other, the horizontal line is boundaries. And if you're looking at it, on the right-hand side of that uh, horizontal line is being boundaryless, too open, too porous, not closed enough. And on the left-hand side is being walled off, uh, where you're not letting anything in. You're a protected fortress. Okay, ready? Ready. You do that, and it kicks out, as any cross would, it kicks out four quadrants. You can be one down and boundaryless, you can be one up and boundaryless. You can be one down and walled off. You can be one up and walled off. And it turns out that each of these quadrants has characteristics. So if you're one down and boundaryless, think Marilyn Monroe. You're boundaryless, so you're dependent on others, and you're shame-based, or you're feeling inferior. So the energy there is desperation. Love me, love me, I'll do anything if you love me. Okay? Mm-hmm. If you're one up in boundaryless, you have that same boundaryless dependency. You need other people to affirm you. But now it's coupled with entitlement and grandiosity and superiority. So now it's get off your fat butt, get over here and love me now. Mm -hmm. uh, not very successful. <laughs> if you're one down and, and the energy there is a kind of emotionally violent energy. Do what I want you to do. I'm right, you're wrong, and I have the right to control you and get angry if, uh, if you don't allow yourself to be controlled. So one down and boundaryless is desperate. One up and boundaryless is kind of controlling and angry. One down and walled off is depressed, resigned. I'm not engaged, and I'm feeling inferior, and kind of hopeless, and what's, what's the use anyway? Why should I engage? And if you're one up and walled off, you're also not engaged, but now you're grandiose or superior. So now it's, I'm not engaged with you because you're not worthy of connection to me. Mm -hmm. And the energy there is mean. It's kind of mean-spirited, passive-aggressive, withholding. Now, you really need the book for this, but if you know what quadrant you're in, you know what work you need to do. 
because uh, wherever you are, you need to come in the center. So if you're one down and boundaryless, do go to work on your self-esteem and come up from that one down dependency and take better care of yourself. If you're one up and boundaryless, contain yourself. Work on the containing part of that boundary. Don't inflict yourself on the people around you and come down off your high horse into engagement. If you're one down and walled off, uh, then re-engage, uh, get infused with with a little a dash of hope, and get back on the horse and try again. And if you're one up and uh, walled off, also re-engage and come down off your high horse. You're not God's gift. Calm down. Uh, you're no better and no worse than anybody else. So lose the attitude. Uh, so identifying what quadrant you're in on a bad day, not on a good day, but identifying what quadrant you're in will tell you where you need to go. I appreciate your very generous overview of that and can heartily recommend your book, The New Rules of Marriage, both for its uh, much deeper discussion of that and how to use the relationship grid and also just so many more topics that there's just no way that we could cover it all in an hour. Obviously, you're doing weekend-long workshops to, to talk about this book. Terry, thank you so much for your time today and for the, the depth of passion and knowledge that you bring to the topic of having amazing relationships. I really appreciate your coming on today's show. Oh, thank you, Neil. You're a great interviewer. They were great questions. It was fun to talk to you. Great. And just as a reminder for everyone, if you want more information about Terry Real, you can visit his site, terryreal.com, or you can visit neilsatin.com slash Terry, or text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the directions there. And that will help you get all of the relevant information from today's show, as well as links for you to find out even more about Terry's work and how it can impact you. So thank you so much for listening today and have a great day. Thank you for listening to another episode of Relationship Alive. If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive Community Facebook group. And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com podcast. Or you can always text the word PASSION, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive, either for a future or past guest? Let me know and I'll see what I can do. Take care and see you next time.